Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2. Picking up where we left off last week on Christmas morning, we'll be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 36, which is the end of the chapter. First Samuel two twelve through thirty six. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt; they did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything that his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar? to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your hearts. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In in one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. This is the word of the Lord. May you bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this day, it tells us many difficult things, many tragic things about the neglect of your worship and the harm done to your people. I pray that as we look at it, as we consider it, your spirit would illuminate our hearts and that we would see the reality of the two houses, of two ways, of two outcomes for people in this world, and that we would be found in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at the birth of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and in the beginning of chapter 2. We saw the divided house of Elkanah, where favoritism and strife abounded between Elkanah's two wives, the childbearing but vindictive Penina, and the favored but barren Hannah. We saw Hannah's desperate prayer for a son and her commitment to devote a son to the Lord's service should the Lord provide. And we saw the birth of that son, Samuel, and then Hannah's faithfulness to fulfill what she had vowed. And then finally, we saw Hannah's doxology, her song of praise, which was even prophetic, foreseeing a king that would rule in righteousness and in justice. Now, in that message, I did drop a couple of hints about the state of Eli the priest and his sons and the situation at the tabernacle of God at Shiloh. So on one hand, we see Hannah, this faithful wife and mother, though she lives in a difficult situation in her home. We see her righteous and faithful conduct. Well, this week, we see the other side of the story. We see the other hand. We see Eli the priest and his sons. We see a sharp and perhaps surprising contrast as we find out that the family that should be set aside to serve the Lord is in fact doing anything but. In reality, all of history among all people involves a choosing of sides, a separation of two sides. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. I know I mentioned this a lot, but to put it in the terms of the early church father, Augustine, there are two cities. There's the city of God. Those who worship God are on their way through this world to eternal glory and the city of man, which for all its wealth and success and prosperity in this age is on its way to destruction. 
We've seen this as we've been looking at Genesis from the very beginning of the world. This is how it was, and this is how it will continue in this fallen and sinful world until the end. Now, we might ask ourselves, where are these lines drawn? It would be a simple answer to say that the church, the people in the house of God, belongs to the city of God, to the house of God. But then on the other hand, we also know that the visible church does not correspond perfectly. There are false churches. There are false Christians within the church, false professors and teachers who seek to lead God's people astray. Whereas on the other hand, we see the city of God sometimes manifest in unlikely places. We see God saved from the most egregious of sins and the most desperate of situations. So there are these two cities, these two families, these two households. And in this text today, we are welcomed to judge between them. We see the family of priests in our text and the family of Samuel. And in them, we see a distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not. And so we will look at these two houses, these two peoples today, in three points. First, they have different devotions. We see this in verses 12 through 21. Their loyalty is in different places. Second, they have different dealings. We see this in verses 23 through 26. These different devotions work themselves out in the way that these people conduct themselves. And third and finally, they have different destinies, as we see in verses 27 through 36. The end, the outcome, for these two houses will be quite different. So again, we have different devotions, different dealings, and different destinies. So let us first look at different devotions in verses 12 through 21. Now just as a reminder, 1 Samuel begins in the time of the judges. This is a period where after the conquest of Canaan by the Israelites, there is great backsliding. There is apostasy, there is lawlessness, there is anarchy. One might look at the time of Judges and maybe try to find some consolation in thinking that, well, at least they have the tabernacle. At least the worship of God by those tasked with it was still going on. And yet we find in our opening verses today that even this worship at the tabernacle has been polluted. It has been corrupted by sin. We see in verse 12 that these sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, as they were introduced by name last week, they were corrupt or they were worthless men. Now the Hebrew word here for corrupt or worthless is belial. Maybe you've heard that word before because it is a word often associated with Satan and demons and their being and activities. So these are not just Worthless or unproductive or lazy or ineffective men. They are evil men. They are men who belong to the devil. In fact, the text more literally reads, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. Now this word Belial, it appeared previously. It appeared in chapter 1, verse 16, when Hannah gently rebuked Eli when Eli accused her of drunkenness. She said, do not regard your servant as Belial, as worthless or as evil. 
So Eli is out there looking for Belial. He's looking for evil and worthlessness among the worshipers of the Lord. But the Lord here tells us that Eli's own sons are clearly Belial. It's a sort of a matter of Eli needing to get his own house in order before dealing with others. Or to put it in Jesus' terms in Matthew 7, 5, this is a situation where Eli is looking for specks in the eyes of others while there is a log in his own. Eli is rebuking worshipers, including the righteous Hannah, for the appearance of evil when very clear and profound evil is reigning in his own house and reigning in the service at the tabernacle. And not only do we read that Hophni and Phinehas are these worthless and evil men, but next we read that they do not know the Lord. Now, it would be bad enough to say this of any person, but how much worse when it is true of the priests, the ones who are supposed to mediate to the Lord on behalf of his people, but they don't themselves know the Lord. So just how bad are things at the tabernacle? Well, as one commentator puts it, worship is a farce at Shiloh. It's a sham. It's fraudulent. It's empty motions that don't bring and don't do the things that they claim to do. Now, to understand why, we need to look at what is described here in the worship at Shiloh in comparison to how God intended it. So we see in verses 13 and 14 this description of someone with a fork, a a three-pronged hook, coming and taking meat from a boiling pot. Now, what does this mean? Why is this a problem? Well, as I mentioned last time, most of the sacrifices that were brought to the tabernacle or later to the temple They weren't completely used up or burned up in the sacrifice, and they weren't completely kept by the priest. In fact, the most common sacrifice that would have been offered was the peace offering, the rules of which are set out in Leviticus 7. And in the peace offering, the breast and the thigh of the animal were given to the priests. The fat was to be burned. That was God's portion And then the rest of the animal was given back to the person who brought it, and they could eat it. They could have a feast. Now the fat, as I mentioned, that was not to be eaten at all. Anyone who was eating fat from the sacrifices, they were to be cut off from the people. They were to be separated, excommunicated, sent away. They could not be part of the people of God anymore, for they were stealing his portion. So compare this, what is set forth in Leviticus, with what we see here in 1 Samuel 2. First we see in verses 13 and 14 that the priests of Shiloh are acting out of greed and gluttony. It's not enough that they get the thigh and the breast, which would be among the largest and best cuts of meat. They're coming out with their forks and taking even more from the worshipers. They're basically using their priestly position and authority to steal from the people. As if that's not bad enough, though, in verses 15 and 16, rather than burning the fat as they are commanded to do under this penalty of cutting off, these sons of Eli are refusing to take meat, which is prepared properly, where the fat is taken off and burned and the meat is boiled. They're insisting on having the raw meat because they want to roast and eat the fat themselves. 
So not only are they stealing from the people, they are stealing from God. Now, when we see this in light of what is required of the priest, we can understand how egregious of a sin this is. And for this, we see in verse 17, Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. They treated what was holy as what was common. They treated what was to be God's as though it was theirs. Their devotion was not to God or to his people, but to themselves. Then they heaped condemnation and judgment on themselves by their actions, despising, abhorring God's worship. Contrast this with verses 18 through 21. Here we turn away for the first time today from the house of Eli to the house of Samuel. Remember, Samuel has been left at the tabernacle, devoted, not to himself like the priest, but devoted to the service of the Lord. And we read that Samuel is wearing a linen ephod. This is the attire that those who worked in service to the Lord should have had. It's the proper priestly garments. And we read that Hannah is diligent in keeping him on this path, bringing Samuel new robes every year when she comes to sacrifice, because wouldn't you know it, kids grow. They outgrow clothes. They need new clothes. So Hannah is making sure that Samuel has what he needs to serve the Lord faithfully. Now, while the sons of Eli despise and abuse the worship and worshipers of God, there remains at least one in Israel, just a child, who is being led in proper service of the Lord. Samuel has been devoted to God for God's service, and even the mother who gave him up for this purpose continues to spur him on in this devotion. Now for this, she is blessed. Hannah receives a blessing from Eli each year. And then we also read that though she was once barren, she would conceive and bear many more children. We see the house of the faithful being added to, while the other house is on its way to its end. And we see in verse 21 that Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Despite all this wickedness and corruption at Shiloh at the tabernacle, Despite it being abused and profaned by the wicked sons of Eli, the Lord is still present. But the Lord's blessing is no longer on Eli and the house of priests, but on this boy, Samuel. So we have seen the different devotions of the house of Eli and the house of Samuel. One is committed to self, even at the expense of defiling worship and stealing from God and his people while the other is devoted to the service of the Lord. But after these different devotions in our second point today, we see these houses in their different dealings. This is not just a question of priorities and commitments and loyalties, but also of conduct. What are they doing? And this is what we see in verses 22 through 26. Now we see at this point that Eli was very old. He was feeble. He was frail. We find out later that not only Eli was old, but he was overweight and he was going blind. Now the scourge of aging hits all of us. And, you know, that's just life in this fallen world. We get old, you know, our bodies don't function as they used to be, as they used to. 
But also with Eli, we see in his last years that he seems to be taking a hands-off approach to his parenting and to his approach to his duties as the high priest. For we we read next that in addition to the abuse and theft surrounding the sacrifices, Eli's sons are abusing their office and the people at the temple to commit gross acts of sexual immorality. Not just once, but frequently. We read that Eli heard everything his sons did to all Israel. So not just occasionally, not a few. This is a widespread thing. And how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. In Exodus 38, when the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was built, uh, it says there the women would minister at the entrance. They were probably there to help the priests do whatever various menial tasks needed to be done so that the worship of God could continue. So what were Hophni and Phineas doing? Well, they were having inappropriate sexual relations with them. They, these women had come to serve God, but these two worthless men are abusing their authority and abusing these women who have come to serve the Lord and committing great sin. That they do this regularly means that they had likely become <laughs> seared in their consciences to this horrible thing they're doing. They probably come up with excuses. They probably come up with justifications of why they're entitled to this, why it's okay for them to do these things. Now this sort of perversion, sadly, was not limited to that day. Many churches, many ministries, true and false, have been scandalized by leaders and members who use the church and use its members as tools towards their sin and towards their deviancy. Let me be very clear. For this, the wrath of God is kindled. God will not let his worship and he will not let his people be profaned and be distorted to satisfy the sinful lusts of his creatures. God is aware of this wickedness in Shiloh and God is preparing judgment, even when Eli can't be so bothered. The sins of Hophni and Phinehas, they were severe such that they deserve not only to be stripped of their priestly office, but to be cut off from the people and put to death. So what does Eli do? Well, the best he can muster is some complaining about their behavior, as we see starting in verse 23. He asks, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Know, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. This total abdication of God's worship and the abuse of his worshipers and the best Eli can do is whine about it a little. Come on, why you gotta do that? Eli should be much more upset. He should be much more angry at this blasphemy of God that is going on in his presence. He should be raging against them He should be executing judgment on them, stripping them of their office, cutting them off from the people, even seeing their execution for these great sins. Somebody should be doing something. But this failure of parenting and priesting by Eli probably didn't start here in 1 Samuel 2. What went into raising Hophni and Phinehas that would 
caused them to be such wicked and worthless men. How long had it gone on? It sounds like from what we read in the text, it has gone on for some time. And what, if anything, had Eli ever tried to do about it? We don't have a lot of details, but it doesn't seem like Eli was really a man of action against such wickedness. All we get even here is just a whimper, a complaint. But Eli does ask them a question. He says, if one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? What we see here is an intensification of the severity of sins that are done in God's house and towards God's people. Basically, it is one thing to sin against men. And yes, Hophni and Phinehas were very much sinning against people. They were stealing food. They were committing these gross acts of sexual immorality. But the context in which this occurs and what is supposed to be the place and practices of worshiping God makes these sins all the more egregious. Because these are the sins that do violence to and destroy God's people that leads them into stumbling and that leads them into rebelling against and rejecting God because of his corrupt messengers. For whatever consequences our sins have against other people, our sins are always first and foremost against God. These sins, these particular sins, sins that profane the worship of God and blaspheme his name, they're something of a form of spiritual murder. Those who are evil and corrupt ambassadors of God turn the people from him. And for this, God's wrath is kindled. It's true in that day, and it is true now. Sadly, as we see at the end of verse 25, Eli's rebuke is not only too little, but it is far too late. We read, Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. God had seen this mockery of his worship. He had heard the protests of his people. He had watched the failure of anyone and everyone among the priests to put a stop to this wickedness, and so now judgment was coming. See, God will only strive with sinners for so long. Sin is not something to be trifled with. It is not something to be negotiated with. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, we ought to repent. And repentance is not merely to ask for God's forgiveness for the the sin, but it involves leaving that sin behind. It involves striving to turn away from it. Yes, some sins are difficult to shed, Our sanctification is a long and painful and, in this life, incomplete process. But there is, in the Christian, an earnest desire to turn away from sin and do what is pleasing to God. Now, if you have that desire, that is grace. That is an evidence of God's work in your life, even as you will still struggle with sin in this life. But for Hophni and Phinehas... The time for repentance is gone. Their consciences are so seared that they will not hear this call to repentance anymore. The judgment has already been rendered. God will put them to death. But as we saw in the previous section, we see in verse 26 a reversal, a contrast when we check in on Samuel. While Hophni and Phinehas are in twilight, Samuel is growing. 
While Hophni and Phinehas have incurred God's wrath, Samuel has God's favor. While the sons of Eli draw the complaints and outcry of the people, the boy Samuel grows in favor with man. Where the house of Eli is crumbling, God is building a new house. He's raising up a prophet and a priest who will do what is right. God is still working, even despite this hopeless and very wicked-looking situation among the people of Israel. God will build a house where his name will be glorified by his people. This brings us to our third and final point. We have seen the different devotions and different dealings of these two houses. The house of Eli is the house of sin and wickedness. And then the house of Samuel, the house of God, where his glory is known and proclaimed. But now we see the end game. We see that these two houses face different destinies. We read in verse 27 that a man of God comes to Eli, a prophet. We don't know who this prophet is. He's not named. While his identity is not certain, his purpose and his message could not be more clear. There is a reckoning coming for this blasphemy, this profaning of God's worship. The prophet begins with a recollection of history. He reminds Eli of the choosing of the priestly line from the house of your father, he says. So God chose the sons of Levi generally and Moses' brother Aaron specifically to be the priests in the Lord's service. We see this in Exodus 28. Now it is also in Exodus 28 where we see these garments, the robe and the ephod, among other pieces, these same garments that Hannah was making for Samuel and that he was wearing as he should have in the service of the Lord. So the prophet reminds Eli and his sons of the favor and grace that he showed to Levi and Aaron in that action. It was these priests, these sons of Aaron, who received designated portions of the sacrifice of the Lord. But it was these very sacrifices that Eli's sons profaned. And in their greed, they sought more than was theirs and committed other evil acts. And God knows their sin. It is not hidden to God. They haven't been getting away with it. After God has shown them all this favor and blessing, we see here this confrontation when the prophet says, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? So the prophet delivers God's words of confrontation and condemnation from the Lord. This is, it is not enough that they were given this high position of service, that they received an allotment of the sacrifice. Instead, they took more, they took what was not theirs, and they didn't even need it. It was fattening. It's not that which is needed for life. It was excess. It was for decadence. It was so they could live large at the expense of God's people. Now, implicit here is a caution for anyone who labors in the ministry of the Lord. How many, in the name of the Lord, build their own empires, build their own wealth, build their own earthly kingdom? Do we not live in the age of the so-called prosperity gospel where 
charlatan preachers of health and wealth prey on the sick, the old, the poor, the dying, while fattening themselves, accumulating mansions, accumulating money, accumulating private jets, and all the trappings of fortune and fame. Do we not live in an age where the world applauds those who would claim to be Christians and ministers of Christ, but will not hold fast to his world. Instead, they will praise the world in its wickedness. This is a challenge for me as someone who's seeking to serve the Lord to check my own motivations and actions. Am I faithful to the Lord or am I faithful to what's best for me? But it's a challenge for all of us. Are we seeking in our lives? Are we seeking in whatever God has called us to to serve God or to serve ourselves? Are we using God's name and God's house and God's people to enrich ourselves? Because this is the charge that God brings through this anonymous prophet against the priests at Shiloh. And for these violations, we see in verses 30 through 34, great and terrible judgments. God remembers his promises to the priesthood, but he rejects Eli and his house because they have despised and rejected him. God's promises belong to God's people. And Eli's sons have proven by their wickedness that the promise is not theirs. And so in verses 31 and 32, the penalty is death. There will not be an old man in the house of Eli. All of his family will come to premature death. They've been living this life of ease and luxury at the expense of God's people, but the day is coming where they will not live at all. And even those who survive, as verse 33 says, they will weep, they will grieve as they see the suffering and death around. Now more specifically, Hophni and Phinehas will die. Their death is foretold here, and a couple chapters from now it comes. They meet violent, early, gruesome deaths in a battle. And this judgment is just. It is well-deserved. If we are all at our best sinners deserving of death, how much more do those who so flagrantly and cruelly despise God's worship and people deserve God's strictest judgments? And there is a time when grace runs out. There is a time when the opportunity for repentance is no more. For those who defy God and shake their fists at him will receive their reward, which is terror, death, and destruction. Not only for this life, but for the life to come. But while we near the end of the story for Eli and his family, it is not the end of God's work. In verse 35, we see yet another reversal. We see the pivot from Eli's house the city of man, the house of Satan, to the city of God, to the house of God and what God will do in response to this wickedness. God says through the prophet, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So in the near term, yes, God is going to raise up better priests for them, Samuel himself being one of them. He's a preview of what's to come. He is a prophet priest. What about his house? I mean, Samuel will have sons, but we see later in this book that his sons do not follow in his ways. 
So could this be referring to other priests who come? Well, eventually, under King Solomon in 1 Kings 2, the last of the sons of Eli will be put out of the priesthood. But then the new priests that come in after, they won't last. Eventually, the temple is going to be destroyed. The people will be carried into exile for their rebellion against God. The priesthood is not a sure house. In fact, it's nearly destroyed, and it only comes back after exile in a weaker form. And in fact, by the New Testament, the priesthood is so corrupt that they are the ones who conspire and put our Lord Jesus to death. So the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy can only come in one place. Who is the faithful priest? The priest without sin who truly does what is in God's heart. Well, the answer is in Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest. He is the priest that all the priests and the sacrifices of the Old Testament are pointing to. So even in these words of condemnation to Eli's house, we see the gospel of grace. In verse 36, we see that even the descendants of Eli, what is left of them, may come to this perfect high priest to ask him for bread. For Jesus is the bread of life. Even the most vile of sinners from the worst of places may come to Christ and find grace. Those even of the house of Eli can come find grace and hope and life in the house of God, in the house of Christ. So, we have seen today these two houses. These two houses have their different devotions, their different ways of dealing, and different destinies. We have seen a house that faces judgment and condemnation. The house of those who rebel against God's will, abuse and exploit even the good that God has given them. Eli's house has shown us this side of things. But we also see another house. The house of those who worship God. The house of those who have received this once for all sacrifice and continuing intercession of Christ. So the question today is, where are you? To which of these houses do you belong? Perhaps you're here today and you are in some pattern of sin. Now, as I said before, if you hate your sin and desire and strive to put it to death, even if you do not succeed perfectly in this life, praise God that is his spirit working in you for sanctification. But perhaps you're here today and living a life of sin and your approach is to justify it, to ignore it, to try to accommodate it to your life and worship rather than flee from it. Well, this house of Eli, these priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they're a warning to you. They are a warning to all of us. There comes a time where repentance runs out. The wrath of God is kindled against sin. If you persist, if you do not turn from your sin, destruction is coming. However, even as this priest foreshadowed to Eli, the gospel is offered to you. 
Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest who made the once for all sacrifice of his blood to wash away the sins of his people and to bring life and salvation. And Christ is for all of those who will confess him with the mouth and believe in him with the heart. And so repent while repentance is available. Do not be like the sons of Eli, hardened, committed to destruction. There is life, there is eternal life offered in Christ, and it can be yours even today. Let us pray. Father, we have seen in your word today difficult truths. We have seen the ugliness of sin, the destruction that it causes, the harm that it does even to God's people. We have seen two ways set before us, two houses, the house of your enemies, the house of those on their way to destruction, but we have also seen the house that is built through your son, Jesus Christ, our perfect high priest, who made the once for all sacrifice for us. And so I pray that we would all believe your gospel today, that we would trust in Christ, receive his forgiveness of sins, and that by your Holy Spirit, we would be quickened to newness of life, forsaking sin and striving after righteousness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.